Welcome to A Seat at the Table, where hosts Annie Zunsa and Sasha Shpilsky share the stories of inspiring women in science and technology. Each episode, they'll delve into the triumphs and challenges that have shaped the lives of these exceptional individuals, sharing profound insights and knowledge along the way. From breaking into quantum computing to revolutionary advancements in battery technology, this podcast is sure to expand your beliefs of what's possible and inspire you to pursue your own dreams. So join Annie and Sasha as they seek to understand what it takes to work in these STEM fields. Prepare to have your beliefs expanded and your aspirations reignited as they explore the limits of what's possible. Get ready to transcend limitations and embrace the infinite possibilities that lie ahead as they uncover the extraordinary stories waiting to be told, inviting you to join them as they push the boundaries of what's possible. Hello everyone, welcome to the first episode of A Seat at the Table. Today we are joined by a very special guest. Uh, Sanskriti, why don't you tell us a bit about who you are and what you're working on? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Sanskriti Deva and I am a quantum computing researcher and engineer. And I'm also the youngest person ever elected on the United Nations National Council. Very cool, very cool. Um, so me and Annie were wondering, what made you interested in quantum computing? Like, it's not necessarily a field that a lot of people are aware of, never mind decide to research further into. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. Um, well, I kind of came upon like the word quantum in like Marvel movies. And I'm like a big Marvel fan. So I was like, really intrigued as to like what it meant. And so I did a lot of like Googling, um, because Obviously, like most people don't know anyone who's a quantum engineer, and I didn't either. Um, but after a lot of Googling, I found out what it was and that it was very different from what they show in Marvel movies. But it was still really cool because it was like a combination of figuring out how the world and the universe works and then creating technology that like helps make the world a better place. And it was like technology that no one's ever seen before. And I thought that was really exciting. So I decided to like look more into it and learn as much as I could. Yeah, that's amazing. As a fellow Marvel fan myself, I can say that that's very cool. And we also wanted to ask, um, like you've done some really cool things in the field. Like right now you're a developer at IBM, but you've had so much experience working at Quantum. And we were thinking, like we were wondering how, how do you like, how can you do such amazing things in a field which is mostly male dominated not that people like women cannot achieve such things but it can for sure be intimidating uh not seeing people who you can look up to who are like you around so yeah if you could tell us a bit about that yeah no that's a really good question and so um pretty much um i kind of am motivated by um thinking about like people who are going to come after me and like the future generations who are going to work on problems like these and how like if I don't kind of uh make room for myself and like speak up and take up space those future generations aren't going to be motivated to do that either and I'm definitely like very much at the start of my journey with quantum computing um 
but it's been really cool to see like the communities that have already been starting to build in such a new field um, within quantum and also just like engineering. So like, even though that like my major, for example, I'm still in university, but um, there's like 90% men in most of my classes and only 10% women or less, like that's the actual ratio. Um, just being able to find those one or two women in my classes and remembering that when I take up space, I'm motivating others to do the same really helps me. Um, and not going to lie, sometimes it's kind of hard because every single day is different. And a lot of times, like sometimes guys might talk down to you or they might not take your ideas as seriously. Um, but I always go back to that group of women that I've uh, kind of created and that community that we've built Um and realize that I'm not the only one who's facing these problems, but it's not easy every single day. And I always face imposter syndrome like anyone else. So you've talked a bit about self-doubt and imposter syndrome there. Is there anything in particular that you use to like help overcome or cope with those, especially in that tech space? Yeah, that's a really good question. And some of the things that I do is first, I like always consume content that like helps with those types of things. Um, so I have like a couple of people that I follow on like TikTok and Instagram, which is where I usually consume most of my content um, that are like women in tech who have already done similar things like I want to. And so um, just like whenever, like whenever I wake up, I just kind of scroll to through TikTok to wake myself up, which is probably a bad habit, but just like waking up and seeing their like kind of videos about like um, being a woman in tech and like being inspired is always like a great way to like start the day. Um, and then the second thing is I definitely like journal and like I always use like self-reflection, um, which is really good because it allows me to like look at like certain problems I face through like a bigger perspective. So like, for example, let's say like some guy in my class, like talked down to me that one day I can journal about it um, and be like, oh, well, this is a really small problem compared to all of these big problems that I've already faced in my life. And then the third thing, which I've already kind of talked about, is I like to surround myself with people who like motivate me to be the best version of myself. And that includes fellow like women in STEM who know the struggles. Um, so that way I have someone and like a community that I can go back to and talk about um, what I'm facing. And that includes mentors as well as peers. And then also like people like you guys who um, are a part of this greater international community who also want to go into STEM, um, who I can like reach out to and see how they feel about certain things. So that's kind of like the three main strategies I utilize. Yeah, okay, that's, so that's really yeah. amazing. Go in, go in. <laughs> um, so you mentioned something about mentors there. And I was wondering how you go about making such connections. Um, especially like because you mentioned uh, like online, seeing people online who are a part of the STEM community. Um, sometimes it can be a bit hard establishing, you know, mentorship connections through through a screen. So I, I was wondering, how do you go about that process? Yeah, and that's a really, really great question because I feel like something like mentorship isn't really taught in school. Um, and it's something that's really, really important to do. And I kind of recently learned how to like create mentors um, because for most of my life, I didn't really have like mentors that kind of naturally came, especially with the niche spaces that I'm in. Um, but one of the things that I realized was um, kind of what you said, that online communities are a powerful tool, especially LinkedIn. Um, and I've been like gracious enough and like grateful and blessed enough to have uh, mentors within my space that I found on LinkedIn. 
And pretty much what like I would suggest that people do if they're looking for mentors is to reach out to people that you admire and people that um, maybe have a career that like you would want to have um, and then be genuine in your message. One of the things that I see people doing a lot is not be genuine. It's like very obvious to someone if you're just like messaging them for like a job at their company or like um, because you want to like go to that university and they're a professor there um, because it's just easy to tell, especially uh, from like people who like probably get hundreds of these messages a day. And so definitely like be genuine in your message and like find commonalities between like that person and you and ask to like why you want to reach out to them. Um, I really like this quote that like, I think Gigi Hadid said once, she was like, oh, my mom always says to always be the nicest and most hardworking person in the room because otherwise someone will be nicer or be more hardworking and will beat you to it. Um, and like natural talent doesn't matter at that point. And that's something I like always took to heart. Like I think when I read it in like Teen Vogue when I was like 14, 15. Um, and it's true. Um, be sure to like kind of like stay in touch with that mentor as well like schedule like monthly chats with them um and like be genuinely like interested in what they do um and ask them after a couple times of meeting or when you feel like the time is right hi like would you want to be like on my personal board of trustees that's kind of like the line i like to use um so that way they know that this is kind of what you're looking for um and always be ready for someone to say no but remember that if one door closes then another one will open. I'm like a really strict believer in that the universe has the best intentions for you. And every time someone said no to me or I've not gotten an opportunity, um, I've continued to work hard and found out that I'm in a better place than I would have been if I had done that thing or if that person had been, let's say like, you know, my mentor. Um, so that's kind of like an overview of that. That's definitely some really valuable insight, especially like the the genuineness, because I feel like that's really important now. Um, I want to circle back to what you said before. You were talking about how, like, male colleagues would, like, talk down to you, because it, it sounds like it was a pretty common thing. So what do you think that people, like, in general should do to help, like, remove some of the gender bias and empower more people? Yeah. So one of the things I, like, that's really helped me throughout this, like, process or like journey of going into STEM has been realizing that I can only control my like uh, actions and my reactions and I can't really control like other people's reactions and actions and as someone who's very type A and a perfectionist who like likes to be in control that was a really hard thing to learn and I think I'm still learning it even though I know it but what that helped me realize was when someone talks down to me, um, especially if it's because of things that I can't control, like my gender um, or even like my race or my background, um, it's not something that's because of me. And so kind of taking away that like personal blame and guilt and realizing, oh, this is something that like they're dealing with. It's not me. Um, really helped with my mental health in that way because oftentimes it gets really easy to take things personally, um, especially when it's about something you're so passionate about, like STEM or something that you want to give your life pursuing. Um, and then the other thing that I realized was that oftentimes it's actually kind of, um, I wouldn't say fun, but in a way like kind of like a cool thing when someone like doubts you and you're able to show them otherwise. Um, 
and it's like kind of like breaking the glass ceiling and it's it's cool to like kind of think about like oh this person thinks women can't do stem like let me prove them wrong um and i'm someone who like definitely like runs on spite sometimes or not even spite just like being able to like prove people wrong and so um i kind of like tried to see like the positive side of that almost like oh if this person if i can prove this person wrong which obviously is not my responsibility to do so but if i can just like do what i need to that might change this person's perspective on women in stem um and so it's been cool to see that sort of in action um but obviously it's also important to remember that if you're a woman in stem it's not your responsibility to prove anyone wrong just do what you want to do and do it with that genuineness and that hard work and eventually people will come around i've seen that's a really nice here a nice thing to hear um and i would also like to switch up gears a bit and um i would like i would love for us to talk a bit about invent stem uh would you like to tell us a bit about that and the work you're doing there yeah for sure so um when I was in high school, I kind of came from an area where there weren't a lot of STEM resources and there weren't a lot of people um, going into STEM from my high school. And that it was because um, we didn't have a lot of access to information about like, oh, like this is what going into STEM means. This is what going into college means or this is what research is. And so for some reason growing up, like we just thought we weren't the type of people to like go into STEM. Um, and so Invent STEM kind of started because we wanted to create accessibility in STEM and we wanted to kind of get resources um, for like ourselves and our peers to be able to go into STEM. And then we realized that this problem existed throughout all different high schools, not just ours. And then eventually we found out it existed throughout the world. Um, and so Invent STEM kind of uh, started because of that. And right now we're doing a lot of work with STEM accessibility throughout the world. Um, we have chapters in about like 10 countries that are focused on like creating opportunities for STEM. And that looks very different across the world. Um, our four pillars are mental health, of course, which I think is an often overlooked part of STEM. And then legislation. Um, laws are very much intertwined with STEM access and like STEM education, which most people don't realize. Um, and a lot of times legislation is what's stopping people from getting STEM access, especially with minority groups like women and people of color. Um, and then we also have career and uh, career readiness, um, just because oftentimes you start this degree or you start like studying STEM, how do you get a job out of that? Um, it's a lot of skills you don't learn in school, like networking or resume building. And then the last one is college readiness um, to try to figure out like, oh, how can you apply to a four-year college? Um, what options are there for college? Um, so those are our, like four pillars. Um, and it's been really cool to see the impact we've been able to have. That's super amazing. Um, that makes me really happy to hear that you guys are working on something as important to that. But what I'd like to know is like a lot of people see that there's a problem in the world, but they don't actually take action to solving it. So I kind of want to know like what, not necessarily what inspired you, but how were you able to like make that change? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I would say, I think the cost of inaction which is kind of cheesy, but like when you think about it, um, I think the cost of inaction oftentimes is like a lot more than the cost of action. And I'm the type of person who like 
overthinks things sometimes. And so like, I realized like in my life that I would probably like look back and regret not doing something rather than like looking back and doing something and be like, oh, that didn't really work out, but that's fine. I learned this, this, and this from it, which is honestly kind of why I like went into quantum computing, like ran for the UN, like do a lot of the things that I do um, because I realized like, oh, if I look back and I say, I ran for the UN, I didn't win, I would rather do that than say, oh, I really wanted to do this. Who would have known what would have happened if I had? Um, And so that's kind of what motivates me personally. And that's like why I got into quantum computing as well. Um, Because I also had like doubts, oh, am I smart enough to do this? Am I capable enough? Like, like they probably don't want someone like me in quantum computing. Um, But like, I realized that when I'm like, old like 80 or something and I look back and I'm like oh wow like I had the opportunity to go into quantum computing and I had an interest but I just like never did it I would probably feel more like regret and negative emotion than if I look back and I'm like oh yeah I tried that out and it was not my thing but I'm glad I did that so that's kind of what fuels me and I think it's so far a philosophy that's worked really well but let's see I feel like that's such an amazing mindset to have. Um, I'm going to bring up another cheesy quote, which is that you miss 100% of the shots that you don't take. And I feel like that's something really cool for people to keep in mind and to have as a driving function. But I was also wondering, like you've done some very, very cool stuff. Um, are there Were there any other mindsets that helped you along the way? Yeah, for sure. I think one of the mindsets that really helped me was to lean into failure, um, which a lot of people don't really, I think, realize the amount of failures that go behind one success. Um, But it's really true. I probably failed more times than I have succeeded, um, which most people like obviously don't see just because of the culture we have right now with social media, of kind of highlighting your accomplishments. Um, but if you know me personally, or, you know, if you ever have a coffee chat with me, I will tell you, like, I failed exams before, like, I've like failed classes before, like, I've like, you know, like, I'm not perfect. I'm just as human as anyone else. Um, and so leaning into those failures and forgiving yourself is super duper important because there have been so many times where I've just wanted to like not get back up and keep trying. But like being able to forgive yourself, especially as someone who's a woman in STEM and who's type A, um, who I think a lot of people are in like the STEM space um, has been really beneficial um, because then I've been able to like get up and like go after the things that I want to with even more like force and even more knowledge than I had before. Because I realized that in the end of the day, I really enjoy the process of figuring things out rather than the success itself. And failure is a huge part of that process. And then the other thing that I think that's really helped me is definitely like being genuine, which I've mentioned before, but I think a lot of people kind of go after those like material successes or those accomplishments without realizing that really the most fruitful part of any journey or any like sort of goal is the people you meet along the way, which is again, really cheesy, but so true. Um, The amazing genuine connections I've been able to form with people who are so brilliant, each in their own ways, has been the most fruitful thing I've been able to do these like past couple of years while like kind of starting my career journey Um, and being able to work on them with um, different projects as well as like kind of help them has been so cool to see. Um, 
And those are like the two things I think that have really helped me that are definitely underrated and not talked about. Definitely super interesting to hear that. Um, on that note, kind of about failures, projects and connections. Um, have there been any like pivotal moments or like big turning points in your career that kind of led you to where you are now? For sure. I think um, one of the biggest turning points was probably um, COVID-19, which I know like was a big turning point for a lot of people. And personally for me, it was a good opportunity to kind of reflect as well as like not like kind of like do a hundred things at once. Um, Cause I'm the type of person who like wants to do everything at once, but COVID-19 kind of forced me to like slow down, especially when we were in quarantine, um, which like quarantine for me was like, honestly about a year of where I was just like kind of in my like room at home. And so I did the entire first year of my college, like at home, like Zoom, um, Zoom University, not really like interacting with a lot of people other than online. And what that kind of forced me to do was like look within myself and like realize that a lot of the things that I was seeking externally, I could find like internally within myself. Um, And that included like figuring out like what confidence looks like for me, figuring out, okay, I've been chasing after these like external goals and these accomplishments. Why have I been doing that? And like, what's giving me fulfillment? And so that was really important, especially because um, as a young adult, we're often told that, okay, now you have to go to a four-year university. Oh, you should study engineering. That's a good major. Like you'll have a successful life or like, oh, now like you have to like start looking into grad school. And so you're kind of going from like, phase of life to phase of life and it goes by like so fast that you don't even like get the chance to look back and so COVID-19 really helped me um, realize the power of reflection especially like talking to yourself and it kind of helped me realize that honestly at that point I didn't really know myself and so after COVID-19 and quarantine I started this like journey of starting to get to know myself and that really helped with a lot of different things like my self-esteem my confidence my self-love which ended up actually resulting in a lot of my like external accomplishments, um, which I didn't think it would because I didn't realize that connection between internal reflection and internal sort of work and external accomplishment because I was someone that was like, go, 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 um, and didn't really stop to think about myself. So that was probably the most pivotal point so far. Yeah, I definitely think that self-care can be such an underestimated thing sometimes, but it's so, like, so important. And on that note, I, I was wondering, you had mentioned something about journaling before, but I was wondering if you have any other strategies of self-care um, that you would like to share or that you use, like, in your everyday life. Yeah, for sure. I'm still like figuring that out, I think, like perfecting the self-care routine, which I think is a constant struggle, at least for me. But one of the things I do is definitely make time for myself. I think especially when you like get into college or when you're in the early workforce, um, you meet all of these cool people who like, um, thankfully, like always want to hang out or like do things. But it's always important to kind of set those boundaries for yourself and like not have FOMO or like the fear of missing out. Um, which I had to like learn how to not do the first year of college because the first year of college, um, which you guys will see, um, everyone kind of wants to go out or like hang out or like let's study together. Um, and so kind of like setting those boundaries with myself and like let go- letting go of the fearing fear of missing out. And then the other thing that I do is like affirmations. 
Um, so I thought like at first affirmations were like really, really cheesy, like, um, but honestly, like looking in the mirror and like doing affirmations really helped, especially with my initial stages of like getting to know myself and like self-love. And then the third thing that like I did um, when I needed to was like therapy, which like really helped, which was um, kind of like something that um, helped me take care of like my brain and understand it a little bit more. Um, and so um, I actually like recently graduated the therapy that I was in just now, um, which like the goal of therapy is to eventually graduate and being able to like kind of maintain yourself without it um but it was good I was for like kind of maintaining your brain it's kind of like a doctor checkup but for your brain and for your mental health which is just as important um so definitely don't underestimate the power of therapy uh it definitely transformed my life yeah that's definitely a really good message for people to hear Uh, I think another thing that can have a big impact on like self-care is like having meaning in your life so from our conversation so far it sounds like that was kind of found through like the STEM world and the quantum world so what has been like your favorite thing that you've done in quantum so far yeah so I think the favorite thing that I've done so far is teach quantum Um, because it's often like a very inaccessible subject Um, but for like the past I think two years two years and a half um, I've been teaching quantum and I actually just like figured out that I've taught over 10,000 students quantum computing which is an insane number which I didn't even like realize um, until I calculated it like the other week but um, I've been teaching quantum and it's often been like high school students or even undergrad and graduate students who have oftentimes no background in coding or in STEM. And so being able to teach that from scratch and being that their like first introduction to the STEM fields or coding or computer science slash computer engineering has been really fruitful because you just kind of see um, like they're them during the first week kind of unsure of themselves, um, kind of being like, oh, like this sounds hard, like this isn't for me, which is kind of where I was when I started. And then seeing them completely transformed by the end of it and do their own projects in quantum and telling me how much they like um, now want to go into quantum or even if they don't want to go into quantum, how excited they are about taking on any challenge they throw at, or life throws at them because they've been able to do quantum computing is like really cool to see um, because I feel like oftentimes um, going into something that you feel like isn't for you is the best way to kind of prove yourself wrong and build that self-confidence. So that's probably been like the most like cool and fruitful thing that I've done. And I like love all of my students. Um, I like to think of myself as their like little mother hen who's brought them into the world world of quantum. Um, But yeah, I think that's been the most fruitful. That is so cool. And on the note of teaching like concepts to people, I'm sure that our audience would love to uh, learn a bit more about quantum. So um, how would you explain quantum to someone who's maybe not as familiar Um, with a concept. For sure, yeah. So quantum computing um, is this kind of new type of computing that's emerging that is predicted to be a paradigm shift in computing and technology as we know it. It's not going to completely take away classical computing, which is how we refer to the computers we have today, but it's going to kind of embed itself within classical computing to create and do more innovative stuff. 
So the basics of quantum computing, um, you guys probably know this, but our technology is made up of bits, which are zeros or ones. And so all of our technology, including like the laptop I'm using to talk to you guys today, um, or the phone you're probably listening to um, the podcast on, um, is made up of machine code, which is just a series of zeros or ones in a line. And that tells the computer what to do. And so in quantum computing, instead of it being a bit, which is the zeros or the ones that we referred to, it's a quantum bit. And so there was this experiment done um, where they found out that um, quantum mechanics was a thing. And so quantum mechanics pretty much like changed the world of physics. Um, and it deals with all the small particles in the universe. And so that experiment found out that a wave and a particle could be the same thing at the same time. So instead of it being a wave or a particle, it could be a wave and a particle. And so that kind of blew up physics. And so what quantum computing does is it takes that wave-particle duality and applies it to the bits to create a quantum bit. So instead of it being a zero or a one in the code, it can be a zero and a one at the same time. So if you want to tell your friends what quantum computing is in one sentence, it's applying the principle of wave-particle duality to computer bits to create a quantum bit. And what this allows us to do is have applications in specifically things like optimization. So anytime like you get an Amazon delivery, that's a huge optimization problem. How can they transport this object from one place to another? And how can they do that millions of times a day? That's optimization. The second thing is it's really good at like um, simulating natural processes like photosynthesis, which we actually don't fully understand, even though it's something that, you know, is the basis of our like food systems. Um, and a lot of other cool things like predicting, um, speeding up algorithms and also reducing the time for um, storage. Um, so one quantum bit can take two bits of actual information. So it has a lot of transformative possibilities. Um, and yeah, that's what quantum computing is. Definitely a really interesting um, description there we got. Um, so quantum, from what I understand, has like massive potential, but it hasn't been like too implemented yet, at least not to my knowledge. So I got kind of two questions for you, like how long until it is implemented? And then where is the future? Like, where is it heading? For sure. So you're very much correct. We haven't reached the point of quantum advantage, as a lot of people like to say, um, where there's actual like, um, like, proof of a quantum algorithm being able to do something better than a classical algorithm. And again, classical algorithm is anything we already have that's not quantum. But um, there have been a lot of simulations and proofs of that, which is really cool to see, which is why a lot of people see so much potential in it. And so for your first question, how long? Um, so that question is really dependent on who you're asking. So if you're asking a lot of physicists, they would probably be really hesitant to ask that question um, because that would be a prediction. And so my personal prediction is um, right now there's a lot of hype around quantum. And so there's kind of this like bubble that's been created, kind of like how in the early 2000s there was a dot com bubble where there was so much hype around the Internet that billions and billions of dollars were being put into this industry. But then that bubble burst and a lot of that like valuation kind of went down. 
And so my like sort of thing is I think in the next like five to 10 years, we'll figure out like what the true like potential of quantum is. And I feel like regardless, that bubble is going to pop because there's so many companies um, that are just doing quantum for the sake of putting the word quantum on their company um, line. And so I think those companies might dissolve or like might not work. And the companies who might be actually doing innovations will stay. And that's my personal prediction. And then your second question, which I think I can do a better job of answering with more concrete, like actual things, um, is what the future of quantum is. So right now, quantum computers are these giant chandeliers that look like gold and diamond chandeliers, which honestly, I really like because, you know, I'm a material girl. Like, um, I have this like semi dream that um, one day when I have my own house that I'm going to put like a quantum computer model as a chandelier just for like fun so people can like ask me about it I'm like oh yeah that's an old uh, quantum computer model um because probably by that time there's going to be new sort of computers or something by the way technology is exponentially increasing but so there's, there's these giant massive beasts and the reason why they're so big is because quantum bits need to be really really cold in order to work and to stay functional and so because they need to be really really cold the only way we can access quantum computers now is through the cloud. And so IBM actually has done a great job of doing this. And they were the first quantum computing cloud-based platform. And it's called IBM Quantum Experience. So you can actually Google this. And that's how all of researchers and most researchers kind of access quantum computers that are publicly available. And you can code on there and run it on a real quantum computer. And you guys can do this like right after we end this call or like at, right after you like stop listening to this podcast. Um, look up IBM Quantum Experience, write some code, um, or you can play around with the circuit composer, which is you can just literally drag gates and see what it does. And then you can run it on quantum computers worldwide. And so the future of quantum computing in the next five to 10 years is cloud-based quantum computing. So most companies, most people, most researchers are probably going to access those computers through the cloud. There's not going to be a quantum laptop or a quantum device in your own home. Because again, that those are very expensive and they need to be very, very cold. Um, and with that, I think the use cases of quantum computing is going to increase. We've already seen businesses use quantum computing in some of the things I listed before, like optimization simulations um, and natural simulations. But I think that amount of use cases is going to increase as the technology improves. And that's really exciting because um, I think we'll see that technology slowly become more and more enveloped in our daily life. Yeah, that is really, really exciting. And I would also encourage everyone who is listening to this to go to that site and play around with it. Uh, I've personally um, seen like how that is. And I was so excited and so like, wow, <laughs> when I first stumbled across that you can actually like use a quantum computer without going to an institution that has a quantum computer, like basically using it in the clouds, which is something cloud, sorry, which is something so cool. Um, and I was also wondering, so for anyone uh, listening that may actually want to go and work into the field of quantum, uh, what do you think are the most important skills that somebody should have or should try to develop in order to work on something like this? Yeah, um, so the first thing is definitely have a strong background in all things classical side. So most people don't realize this, but I would say... 90% of working in quantum computing or like 99% is mostly classical stuff. Um, Cause even within like the quantum computer itself, 
um, a lot of the technology is stuff we already knew how to do. And the novel technology is just the quantum bit portion of it. So you need to have a strong understanding of the classical side of it. And that could be the classical side of whichever sort of take you want to go into quantum computing. So if you want to go into the business side of quantum computing, have a strong background in the business side. If you want to go into like the UI UX design of quantum computing, have a strong background on UI UX design. If you want to go into like the education side of quantum computing, have a strong background in education. If you want to be a software in quantum computing, have a strong software engineering background um, and so on. So have a strong background in the uh, classical side, um, which is why there's no such thing right now as a quantum computing major in college, because we really don't know where this field is going to go, if it's going to exist in the next like five to 10 years, um, or if it's not. So don't major in like quantum computing, major in like computer engineering, computer science, electrical engineering, physics, because um, that's the strongest uh, technical background sides that you would need. Um, and then the second thing I would say is to definitely utilize the online communities, including LinkedIn, especially um, because the quantum computing community is a very small place, which I only realized in the past couple of years. And so the best way to get involved is to utilize these online communities, because chances are you don't have anywhere in your anyone in your geographic area that's doing quantum computing. And if you do, you're very lucky because I definitely did not know anyone doing quantum computing in my local area. And so utilize those online communities. I know LinkedIn can be really cringy sometimes, or at least I think it is. And it can be kind of weird sometimes because you're just like scrolling through people talking about how great they are. Um, but um, ignoring all of that, it's a great place to kind of create these connections with people who you, who you would otherwise not meet and kind of create those mentorship connections that we talked about. And it's also a great way to find programs that will help you learn quantum computing or will help uh, you like meet quantum computing companies. And a lot of those programs are really cool. Like IBM has Qiskit Advocate program where you can be an advocate for quantum computing in your local community and also work on quantum code. And they have a lot of certifications you can do. And I know there's a lot of other companies doing a lot of other cool things. So those are like really the two things I would say. And then obviously the last thing is to continue to like learn because quantum computing and technology in general is a field where in the next week, something new will happen. So you need to constantly learn and constantly be eager to learn because you never know where this field is going to go. So definitely super interesting about hearing about the amazing world of quantum computing, but there's a whole other aspect that we haven't touched on yet, and that's that you work with the UN. So can you tell us about like how you got into that, like why you decide to join and all that sort of stuff? For sure. So uh, you guys talked a little bit about Invent STEM and we got to talk a little bit about that. So I was doing work with Invent STEM when I actually got an email from someone I didn't know, which... I was like, oh no, like spam email, scary. Um, and at first I did kind of think it was a scam or something. Cause you know, like you get like random emails and it's just like kind of suspicious and you're like, oh, this person's gonna like try to extort money out of me or something, I don't know. Um, but at first I thought it was a spam email, but then it was someone asking me that I should run for the United Nations National Council cause they had seen me speak um, at a conference that I had spoken at and um, by chance, a week before, um, the night before I was like cramming for an exam that I didn't really study for well, um, I was up at like 1 a.m., 2 a.m., just like taking a break from the studying. Um, 
And I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw this account called the UN Youth Observer. And I didn't really know anything about the United Nations other than it was existed because of some sort of war that we learned about in school and that like it was important to the world. And so I think that's what, what most people know about the United Nations, especially young people. And so I didn't realize there was a youth observer to the United Nations or that you could get involved even if it wasn't your career or if you were a young person. And so I'd seen that account a week before, um, thankfully. And so the dots kind of connected in my head. But pretty much most countries have some sort of sub-organization that works with the United Nations. And the United States, where I'm based out of, has the UNAUSA, which if you're a youth member, you can join for free. And if you're uh, over a certain age, I think you have to pay some sort of like membership dues. But um, UNAUSA had a national council, and that's what this person was asking me to run for because they said they don't have a lot of young people. I think officially on the United Nations charter or whatever, a young person is anyone under like 40 or something, or for USA, it's anyone under 40. So for me, I was an infant. I ran when I was 17. Um, so I decided to think about it. And when after I thought about it, I was like, absolutely not. Like, I'm not trying to be a rep on the United Nations. Like, I have no experience other than kind of running in Ben STEM and doing grassroots work. Why would they want me? And so then I thought about it a little bit more. And that thing came back to me that I talked about before, which was, um, will I regret not running or will I regret running more? And I realized I was going to regret not running more because who would have known what could have happened? And so I decided to run, even though I thought that I was not going to win just because imposter syndrome kind of came. And also um, I felt like I was really, really young at 17 to be running. And so I ended up winning for the Southeast seat. So, oh, cat. Um, for podcast listener, listeners, there's like a cat on the screen right now. So cute. It's Sasha's cat. Um, so cute. Um, sorry, got distracted. Uh, you guys see where my priorities lie. But um, I ended up winning the Southeast regional seat. And I represent a bunch of states now, for, all the way from like North Carolina to Puerto Rico, and represent their interests on the UN as well as when you're on the UNA USA National Council, you get to chair committees. And so I'm the vice chair of the nominating committee right now, making sure that it's accessible to be on the UN and kind of incre increasing that transparency. And then I'm also the chair and the youngest chair for the Global Engagement Summit ever. So I get to organize this huge conference in UN headquarters. Um, I got to do it last year and I'll get to do it one more year, which I'm super excited about. But yeah, it's kind of an overview of everything I do at the UN. We are also very excited for you and we can't wait to hear all about how that goes. Um, and also, can I just say that it's so cool that you had such a mindset at only the age of 17 years old, like having the courage to actually go and do something like that and think that way, like, which would I regret more is so amazing. Um, and I was just wondering, like, If you could look back now to yourself, like when you were 17 and starting that whole amazing journey, um, would you give any advice to yourself? Like, would you um, advise yourself to do anything different, to think in a different way? Or what would you say to your young self back then? I would definitely tell her to be easier on herself just because I've, I'm like, I have very like high standards, which is a good thing. But sometimes I have like too high standards of myself and I 
have been too critical on myself. So if I did like one little thing wrong, that looking back, like had no like impact on the long term, like scope of things, I would be so hard on myself. And I would talk so badly to myself that if I like, like, for example, like I would never talk to someone like that, because that's just like mean, but I would be so mean to myself. And it was like, um, kind of out of pocket for me to do. So I would definitely tell myself to be less critical on myself. And that oftentimes like life doesn't go like linearly or exponentially like upwards. It's like bumpy. It's like a sine wave or a cosine wave. You can see the engineer in me coming out with that sentence, but it is. Um, and so it's really important to remember that those failures are not a bad thing. And um, to be less critical on yourself, especially if you're a young person, because literally when you're a young person, I feel like the world, especially right now, can be like such a scary place um, with things like climate change and just like the state of the world. And like we were dealing with the pandemic for the last couple of years. But remember that um, we have the power to kind of change this world and you don't have to change the world in one day. And if you fail at changing the world, that's OK. But just take it a step at the time, step at a time and kind of follow the passions and the things that make you happy. That's a really great place uh, to end it off. As a final thing, um, what would you say that are like the three key takeaways that you want the listeners to have so that they can get the most out of this episode? Yeah, for sure. I would say one, you are capable of anything, including going into quantum computing or becoming a part of the United Nations, regardless of anything, two, um, to lean into your failures and three, to be genuine and to make as many connections as you can, because at the end of the day, um, those material successes only count for so much. And it's about the journey and the people you've met along the way. That is so amazing. Well, thank you once again for being here. Uh, Sasha and I had such an amazing time getting to know you. I think we can both agree that you're probably one of the coolest people that we'd have, we have met so far. Um, we can't wait to see where um, your journey goes. Um, but yeah, is there something else you would like uh, to add to end us off? Nope. Thank you so much, Annie and Sasha. And thank you to the people who are listening. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so guys. much. Uh, yeah, thank you. Bye, everyone.